For those that I haven't met before, massive welcome to KXC. My name's Pete. Together with my wife, B, we lead the church here. So massive, massive welcome to you. Um, shall we pray? Lord, we, we thank you for the sense of your presence in the room. Lord, we thank you for the hunger in this room there is for your presence. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us that same hunger for your word, for your scriptures. Because Lord, we know that your word brings life, that your word is a lamp to our feet. And Lord, we, we need your light. We need your direction. So Lord, as we open the scriptures, speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Amen. Wasn't that an amazing sense of God's presence in the worship? Just incredible. Um, so we're continuing our teaching series, Origins, Exploring the Way of the Early Church. And um, what I want to do is I want to zoom out so we can get a bird's eye kind of perspective and then I'm going to zoom back in. I'm going to try and pull together some of the threads of the last four or five weeks because I feel like some serious truth has been spoken over us. And I kind of want to hover around some of that stuff before adding a few reflections. So week one, Tim opened up and, and looked at this verse, Acts chapter one. This is how Luke begins his, his work. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now the implication here is that Luke has written another book and his other book we have in the scriptures, it's the gospel of Luke, a biography of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So he's basically saying in my first volume, the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that in Luke part two, in his second volume, he's going to tell us about all that Jesus continued to do and teach um, through the spirit at work within the followers of, of Jesus. So this is an incredible moment as we, as we basically figure out what does it mean to be church. Now, as you go about your life, um, as you interact with people and essentially share your life with them, and eventually it's going to come to the point where you, you acknowledge that you're a Christian, you have that conversation, and they might ask you, okay, what does it mean to be church? Like, just help me understand, what is the identity, what is the purpose of church? Like, why do you go to church on Sundays? Why are you part of that community? How do you respond to that question? Um, what are you going to say? And what we're really trying to do in this series is try and figure out how would Paul have answered that question on the basis of the book of Acts? How would Peter have answered that question? What did they understand church to be? Because we need to know where we're heading. That's why this series is about the origins of the church. So we can figure out in this day, in this age, how can we be the church of Jesus Christ um, in London, in this amazing city? So before we zoom in, um, and look at some of this stuff. Let me just share a bit of research I found really helpful. I think you're going to find it hugely helpful too. It's, it's some research done by some urinal designers. They did it actually about 10 years ago. And um, they wanted to help improve men's accuracy when they, when they went to the toilet. And um, this is a totally true piece of research. And what they found is that when men have something to aim at, they're 80% more accurate. So they came up with some designs. This is design number one. Now you can see the fly. That is an unfortunate fly that got hit mid-flow. Um, that's actually part of the design. It's etched into the design. Because as men walk into the urinal, they see the fly and they think, that fly's going to get it. Um, so they aim at the fly and they're more accurate. This is totally legit. Um, and the designers were really inspired by this. Um, and they were like, well, if, if we can improve accuracy by 80% with a fly, come on. We can do better than that as a design. This was their next effort. Uh, it's called the P-Goal. You can order it on Amazon. Um, and you basically aim for the little ball. And as you hit the ball, it goes into the back of the net. 
I know some of the ladies thinking, I'm just so envious. I, I... Anyway, um, let's move on quickly. Ten years has passed since the initial research. And don't you just love technology? What technology opens up as possibilities? Um, look at this. So you basically, you go skiing. And if you, if you go to the left, and then if you move to the right, a little flick and you can go for a jump. Um, extraordinary. I mean, it, it truly is unbelievable. And the catchphrase I love on the piste, lovely. I mean, the remarkable round of applause for that. I mean, we should celebrate. We should celebrate that kind of, of creativity. Some of you will be thinking, what's that got to do with the church? What's that got to do with the book of Acts? It's got everything to do with the book of Acts. It's got everything to do with the book of Acts. Here's the tenuous link. If you were to look at the last hundred years of essentially church decline in, in the Western context... Um, and ask, why has the church been hemorrhaging at such a rate? Um, there would probably be a number of key strands um, in terms of how you'd answer that. You might look at the effect of the Enlightenment worldview on faith, and that people became suspicious of supernaturalism um, and organised religion. You might look at the effect of two world wars on the psyche of, of you know, Europe, um, the Western world, and, and a rise of atheism that swept through Europe as people began to question, how could a loving God allow the atrocities of the first half of the, the 20th century? So atheism, atheism began to grow. Um, and there'd be all these different answers. But if we were being really honest and really humble, part of the mix of the answer would be that we as the church in the West, we forgot where we were aiming. And we were missing the mark. And therefore, when you read texts like the book of Acts, and you look at what they understood church to be, and then you look at church as, as we experience church, and you're like, there's a chasm between the two, right? There's a chasm between the two. And this is a moment with humility to say, God, take us back to what church is meant to be. Show us your vision, your heart for the local church, and help us live up to and live into that reality. That's the journey that we're essentially on. And I want to look at five of the key strands of how the early church understood the community that they were being um, drawn into. Um, something's happened with the fonts, so don't worry about this. You just have to take my word for it that the design was perfect. But because of the fonts at the back not quite sinking, it's not looking great. Anyway, so number one, the church were a community where heaven and earth meet. And we looked at this at the story of Pentecost, um, where essentially fire from heaven fell on the followers of Jesus. Now, we kind of like don't understand that imagery, but anyone in, in the kind of first century Jewish context, they knew what that was meaning. They knew the symbolism of that. Because when God manifests his presence amongst the people, the most often manifestation of his presence was fire. So when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, the bush was on fire. As, as God led them through the wilderness after 400 years of slavery, there's a cloud by day. And what by night, eh? The answer is always going to be fire. Just for anyone that's new, that's wanting to participate, the answer is always going to be fire. Um, so when the, the glory of God filled the tabernacle and God chose to, to make his dwelling place, uh, dwelling place amongst the people, the glory of God fell on the tabernacle and the tabernacle was filled with Amazing. Well done at the back. I, I heard you loud and proud. Um, when Solomon built the temple, again, the Shekinah glory um, fell in the temple and it was filled with... And then at Pentecost, what, what happened? Something, you know, fell and the disciples were filled with... No, they, they were filled with the Spirit, actually. But, but, but fire fell upon them. I was just checking and, and you went with me fully. Um, they were filled with the presence of God, the Spirit of God, but fire was resting on their heads. 
Now, with that imagery, they all knew what was happening because Jesus had prophesied that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it was destroyed in AD 70, for those that know their, their history. But the people weren't freaked out by that because they knew that God had created a new temple. And the new temple were his followers. And the Father's presence had, had filled their innermost beings. They were now the meeting point of heaven and earth. The best way to define heaven throughout the scriptures is the place where God... God lives, the place where his will is done. And where is his will being done throughout the book of Acts? The answer is in and through the local church. Like as you read the stories, like heaven's breaking out, the kingdom of God is breaking out all around them. People are being forgiven of their sins and filled with the spirit and there's physical healings and there's signs and there's wonders and there's miracles. When we gather as the local church 2,000 years later, the spirit is amongst us. We are the meeting point of heaven and earth. Like this is massive. We should fully expect heaven to be breaking out all around us. Like as we go into our workplaces, as we go back into our communities, we take heaven with us. The will of God is breaking out in and through the local church. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? I think that's incredible. Um, Number two then, we're a community of courageous witness. Now we set the congregations, the challenge of throughout this series to be reading through the book of Acts, maybe a chapter a day. Um, And you're going to read through it, 28 chapters, and you'll go back to the beginning, read through it again, keep reading through it, immerse yourself in the story of the early church. And what you'll see is that pretty much on every page, the disciples with boldness communicate the good news of Jesus Christ with a deep sense of urgency. Deep sense of urgency. The font is killing me. It's killing me. With a deep sense of urgency. The Mensch font. It's the KXE font. and It's not been downloaded onto the laptop. Anyway, um, with a deep sense of urgency. Why did they feel such urgency? Um, let me give you two reasons. Because I, I don't see much urgency in the Western church right now. Right? Let me give you two reasons for the urgency. They're just seeing Jesus rise from the dead. Right? And that must redefine everything that you think is possible or impossible. Like they've seen the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world, crucified, three days later, rise from the grave. And they're like, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God is breaking in upon us. They they believe that the resurrection was for the end of time, but the end of time had broken into their time. They're like, this is unbelievably good news. The new creation has dawned. We need to tell everyone. Now, as the followers of Jesus 2,000 years later, we believe in the resurrection, right? That Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive and we can personally know him and that truth has totally transformed our lives we believe in it they had witnessed it now imagine that in your mind we've seen Jesus die and rise again we need to tell everyone there's a deep sense of urgency second reason for the urgency is they genuinely believe Jesus was coming back in their lifetime they didn't know whether it was going to be years maybe decades but they believed in their lifetime Jesus was going to return so they had a window of time to take this message from Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth like time was short so we're going to have to tell everyone we've got to maximize every opportunity to introduce people to the person of Jesus because fullness of life is found in in him they were living between the resurrection and the return of Jesus and they wanted to make their time count Like the reality is we know this, don't we? That time is short. I don't know how long you're going to be in London. 
I don't know how long you're going to be in the current job, working with the current colleagues that you're working with. It might be weeks, it might be months. But you've got this window of opportunity. Tell them about the person of Jesus. So there was a sense of urgency in time. But more than that, there was a sense of urgency in terms of the weight of the message. They'd experienced life in the kingdom of God and they wanted other people to experience that kind of life. So they're like, we have to tell people about the good news of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm guessing that in the back of their minds, they they could remember the story that Jesus told, the parable of a shepherd. And basically there were... 99 sheep that he was with um, and one of the sheep had gone off and got lost and in the parable Jesus says like this is how the good shepherd operates he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one now the story would have created a sense of shock of like what like what kind of shepherd would leave 99 sheep on on an open hillside like exposed to the elements and to the wild animals, leave 99 and go after the one that that's reckless. Jesus is essentially saying, yeah, that's what I'm like when it comes to the lost, reckless. I will always go after the one. I care passionately about the one lost sheep. I've come to seek and save the lost. Now let's just compare that with our current predicament in the Western church. Um, stats suggest in the UK that 5% of people go to church regularly and have a very active faith, 5%. Now, in London, um, it would be down on that. Amongst, let's say, millennials, the dominant demographic of this congregation, at least, amongst millennials, it'd be less still. We're probably getting close to 1% of our peers know and love Jesus and have an active faith. So the question of of our cultural moment isn't, are we going to leave the 99 and go after the one? It's, are we going to leave the one and go after the 99? Now, Jesus told a story that was truly, truly reckless, but the lack of urgency in our context, the complacency that's crept into the church, we don't even see like leaving the the one to go after the 99 is worthwhile at times. We're just happy to be part of the 1% and enjoy church community I think Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Stephen and some of the, the characters we're reading of in, in the book of Acts will be like, no, 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 don't get, don't get complacent. Like we were told to leave the 99 and go after the one. If, if it's completely opposite for you, you should absolutely leave the one and go after the 99. They are lost and they need Jesus. Um, Let me back this up with some stats. Caleb, a few weeks ago, mentioned this Barna research. I don't know if you can read it. You probably can't, so I'll explain it to you. So this is based on some research done in in America, but I'm sure the stats would probably be even more alarming, actually, in our context. Um, So let's just look at the millennial column. These are questions that they were asked. So 96% of millennials said that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. That's encouraging, right? 96% said, yeah, it's part of my faith. 94% said the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. That's really encouraging to me. So 94% of millennials said, the most loving thing I could ever do is introduce someone to the person of Jesus so they can experience life in the kingdom of God. That's amazing. 86% said, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. So, you know, backing themselves in an evangelist encounter. Yeah, don't worry about me. I can handle myself. I can handle myself in that kind of encounter. Um, And then 73% went one step further. I'm gifted at sharing my faith with other people. 73, 
I just don't back, it's not just backing myself, I'm gifted. Forget Alpha, bring your friends to me. Um, and then notice this, because it's kind of encouraging, 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 and then suddenly you read this stat. 47% said it's wrong to share your beliefs with someone of a different worldview. Like, say what? You think it's the best thing that could ever happen to someone to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, but you think it's wrong for you to share your faith with someone with a different worldview. Like the inconsistency in that is like mind-blowing, mind-blowing that we in the Western context have swallowed the pill of relativism, right? And, and we know, don't we, that relativism is philosophically flawed. The statement there can be no such thing as absolute truth is a statement claiming absolute truth and therefore it cannot be true. Like relativism relativizes itself. It's, it's nonsense. And yet in the Western church amongst millennials, we've swallowed the pill and we don't want to offend anyone. So we think actually sharing our faith is a bad thing to do. And yet we believe that 94 or 94% of millennials believe um, it's the best thing that could ever happen to someone for them to encounter Jesus Christ. It, it's mind boggling. And it's happening on our watch. And my hope is, as as you read through the book of Acts, you're like, on every page, they take every opportunity. There's a deep sense of urgency. We're going to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to tell you about his life, death and resurrection. We want you to know life in the kingdom of God. Number three, the third strand we've looked at, which is the church is a community of reckless hospitality. Um, The way the church love one another, it's, it's so inspiring. Um, But there was a constant bias towards the most vulnerable in society. This was the reputation of the early church. They were known for how they loved one another and how generous they were towards one another, but how hospitable they were towards the most vulnerable um, in the society of of the day. It's remarkable. Um, We heard this unpacked, Acts chapter 2, the second section of it, where the community where they sold possessions and and shared everything and lived a communal life, it's it's totally inspiring. The problem is some of us have put that at a distance and said it's an ideal, but it's not possible. Why? Why is it not possible? The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave was present in the early church and it's present in the church of this day. Why wouldn't it be possible? So let me just name some of the practices of the early church um, just to inspire us of of what this reckless hospitality looked like. Um, So here's one of the practices. If they did not have enough food for the hungry people at their door, everyone in the community would fast until everyone could share a meal together. I don't know about you, I, I read that and I'm like, oh my goodness like if there were certain people that didn't have food to eat everyone would fast until they could share a communal meal this was life in the community of the early church radical right they believe that if a child starves while a christian has extra food then the christian is guilty of murder like whoa intense right that's pretty intense these are some of the practices of the early church and this is basil the great don't confuse him with basil because this one was really great basil the great of the fourth century he said this when someone strips a man of his clothes we call him a thief and one who might clothe the naked and does not should not he be given the same name The bread in your cupboards belongs to the hungry. The coat in your wardrobe belongs to the naked. The shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot. The money in your vaults belongs to the destitute. Like these were the beliefs and the practices of the early church. Now, 
I don't know if you've noticed this, but kind of minimalism is becoming this really cool thing. If you look at Netflix and, and kind of look at the documentaries, like loads of documentaries about minimalism. And, and for hipsters, it's like, it's the really cool thing to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm living minimalistically now. It's like, it's really good for my mental health and I'm, I'm sticking it to the man and I'm pushing back on the worldview of consumerism. It's really good for me. It's really good for me. I need you to know that the church has been doing minimalism for the last 2,000 years, not because it's good for us, it's because it's good for the vulnerable. It's good for the vulnerable in society. We live simply so that other people can simply live. And the narcissism of our days, like we're going to do minimalism because it's good for us. No, it's good for the vulnerable in society that we learn to share. So listen to this as a, a statement of the reputation of the early church. So there was a guy called Aristides and one of the emperors um, basically was aware that the, the church was growing numerically um, and he wanted to figure out, is, should this be a concern for him? Was this a threat to the Roman Empire? This is Emperor Hadrian at the time. So he said to Aristides, I want you to go and basically spy on the early church and then write a report and tell me what they're like. Should we be threatened by their growth? And this is the report written to Emperor Hadrian. And this is unbelievable. Just imagine if Theresa May, I know she's busy doing Brexit stuff, but imagine she carved out some time and said, I need a report on the state of the church in this country. I wonder what that, store, that report would, would say, how it would read. Listen to this report. They love one another. That's the first thing. They, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the spirit in God. Now, I know it's not very gender-inclusive language, but you get the idea. They're like, this family, it's, it's more than just blood relatives. We're bonded through the blood of, of Jesus and, and we care for all people in society, particularly the most vulnerable. This is unbelievably good news to the poor, right? This kind of community, unbelievably good news towards the poor. You could see why the church as a community had a gravitational effect. Like the vulnerable would hunt down the church because they wanted to belong to that kind of community. One of the statements that hopefully you've read and should have blown your mind was when it says in the book of Acts that there was no needy person amongst them. In other words, they'd eradicated poverty in that community because of their reckless generosity. As people were selling possessions, selling their land, bringing the money into a central pot and distributing it to those in need. Isn't that remarkable? Do you think if the church lived a little bit more like that in the city of London, it would have a greater impact on the city? Like, it would. The church was known for their reckless hospitality. I love it. Like, Lord, do that in this community. Do it in our hearts. Number four, a community of intentional discipleship. Um, I want to read you briefly the story of Stephen. Um, he's one of the characters. Um, in Acts chapter 6, basically Stephen's been performing signs and wonders, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The Jewish authorities are annoyed, they're angered by it, and they bring him in for questioning um, to the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish law court of the time. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 6, verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
His face was shining like the face of an angel, radiating the glory of God. Now, I mentioned that Luke wrote two books, Luke part one, Luke part two. If you've read Luke part one, just before Jesus dies a brutal death, he goes up on a mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. Um, And on the mountain of transfiguration, his face shines like the face of an angel, radiating the goodness and the glory of God. Now, Luke is retelling the story of Stephen, comparing Stephen to Jesus. Both of their faces radiating the glory of God. Then basically what happens is Stephen proclaims the gospel to them, the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and this angers the Sanhedrin. Like they, they think it's blasphemy. So let's read what happens, verse 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, like the message of, of the gospel, they were furious and gnashed their teeth in. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now Stephen knows what's coming, by the way. He knows he's about to get murdered. He's going to be brutally stoned to death. And just before he gets stoned to death, the the heavens open and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is a, a brief side point, but I find this fascinating. If you read through the New Testament, you will not find any other occasion where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. In every other account, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he standing? And theologians have been baffled by this. The best explanation I've ever heard is a a church pastor, Smith Wigglesworth. And he basically says this, that Jesus in this moment can't, he just can't cope with this level of kind of compassion and excitement. Stephen is standing up for his faith. He's being faithful to the end. He knows he's about to die, but he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Jesus rises to his feet and say, go for it, Stephen, go for it. My faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. He stands to welcome home this saint of the early church who's giving his life for the sake of the gospel. Don't you love that? Jesus just so excited. He just can't help himself. I'm sorry, Dad. Yes, come on, you can do it. I love that. I love that. The passion in the followers of Jesus in the, the early church. Listen to the response in the Sanhedrin. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. That cracks me up. If you, if you have kids, you'll know that toddlers do that. When they don't want to hear something, I'm not listening, Dad. La, la, la. This is grown men doing that. Members of the Sanhedrin, like, grow up. Anyway. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city. Jesus, remember, crucified outside the city walls. They dragged him outside of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Listen to these two Two statements of Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. So if you've read Luke part one, you'll know that there are three statements of Jesus on the cross. In fact, across the four gospels, there's seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Three of them in in Luke's gospel. Two of them are now found on the lips of Stephen. So what did Jesus say at the cross? Um, as, As they were literally killing him, crucifying him. He looked at the soldiers and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's remarkable, right? That you could speak to those that are killing you and say, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. That's remarkable. And now Stephen says to those that are stoning him, he must have been in agony as rocks are, are basically piercing his flesh, breaking his bones. And he looks at those stoning him and says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Unbelievable. 
What did Jesus say on the cross just as he died? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A prayer of total surrender. Surrender unto death. What, what does Stephen say here? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Like Luke structures the telling of this story to make a really simple point that Stephen has become like Jesus, radiating the glory of God, forgiving people as they're killing him, surrendering to the point of death. If you read through the other characters and just plotted out the life of Peter and the life of Paul and some of the other stories in the book of Acts, you'd conclude the same thing. Peter's becoming like Jesus. Paul is becoming like Jesus. They're turning the world upside down by becoming like Jesus. That's how we change the world. That's why the Great Commission was about making disciples. That's why we passionately believe in pattern, getting into groups where we go on an intentional journey of discipleship, of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing the stuff that Jesus did. As we become like Jesus, we change the world. Discipleship is front and center in the book of Acts. Um, finally then, it's not even on the screen. It's killing me. <clears throat> I can't, I can't even remember what it was. A community of radical obedience. That's what it was. A community of, of radical obedience. Um, so if you've got a Bible, the four of you that bought your own Bibles, um, do you want to turn to Acts chapter 10? And we're going to read briefly through a story. Acts chapter 10. If, if you don't have your own Bible, can I encourage you to grab the pew Bibles? Um, I want you to open the Bible and, and open it to the text and let's read it together. Because if you just listen to me, it's not going to go in, in, the, in the, at the same level as if you're reading it. And there's something about opening up the scriptures and becoming familiar with them. Um, so let's open up our Bibles, Acts chapter 10. And it's a fairly long passage. Um, when we read scripture, a lot of us, because we've become familiar with some of the stories, um, we immediately disengage. And it just become words. They become words on a page um, devoid of meaning. We kind of like mentally just dial out. Um, let's actually choose to press in. If I didn't just read out this story, but imagine Peter was here and I said, come and tell us the story of what happened when you engaged with a guy called Cornelius. If he told the story, you would be like, that is mind boggling. Like, did, honestly, did everything happen just like that? You wouldn't believe it. It's so supernatural. It's miraculous. But when we read it, we're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, a bit boring. Is it, I mean, it's a long passage, isn't it? Um, so let's just try and imagine that this is a testimony being shared amongst us. So Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. Um, so just by way of introduction, um, we already know that he's a Gentile and non-Jew. He has a deep respect for the God of the Jewish community. He's God-fearing. We also know he's a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier. Now, it's the Romans that are oppressing the people of Israel, right? So there's some tension in this story. It's like the enemy who respects the God of the Jewish community. And, and what's going on here? And this enemy is about to become a friend, one of the family. It's like mind-boggling. Okay. So he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Pause there, because that's really important. Again, as we read this, often we just dial out. Three in the afternoon. That's interesting. Um, Luke would only add details if they mattered. Why is three in the afternoon important? And it's important because the Jewish community and, and the, the followers of Jesus basically took many of the practices of, of Judaism. In the Jewish community, you'd have set prayers throughout the day. One of those set prayers was at three in the afternoon, 
right? So the people of God are here praying and over here Cornelius has an encounter with God and a vision from God. I think Luke basically is trying to say these two aren't disconnected. Probably someone over here is praying for this person over here who they think is near to the kingdom of God. Like, Lord, bless Cornelius. I know he fears you. He reveres your name. Show him who you really are. And over here, when this person is praying, Cornelius has an encounter and a vision from heaven. Like, we don't often get to see the connections, but when you pray, stuff in the heavenlies shift. Like, this is what Luke is trying to say. Whilst the people were praying, something breaks in here. Like, that's the connection. I think that's mind-blowing. There's power in the prayer of God's people. So this is the vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. So the story goes on. Here's part two of the story. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Okay, so he's about to have an encounter, a vision from heaven. Why is 12 in the noon, 12 noon important in the story? And the answer is that was another opportunity um, for set prayers. It's where the people of God would put down tools, whatever they're doing, they'd stop at noon and they would pray. Now, here's the thing, right? Many of us want, like, a voice from heaven to speak. Like, heavenly visions and dreams. We want it, right? But if we're being really honest, and I think it's good to be honest from time to time, um, many of us can't be bothered to pray. We're too busy to pray. We, we want the angelic visitations, the dreams from heaven, but we're too busy to pray. And and Luke's trying to make the connection. It was at 12 noon when he was praying in a rhythm of prayer. This is why practices are so important. When he was in this rhythm of praying at that time, God spoke to him in this vision. And this vision, as we're going to see, transforms the church as we know it, as Christianity explodes out of of Judaism in the first century. Um, Something happens when you stop and pray. Like this is why we, we need to sort of like have set moments where we stop, we put down tools and, and we pray because when we pray, God speaks. Isn't that unbelievable? Okay, so he became hungry and wanted to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius, found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Like, that's amazing. Not coincidence, a work of the Spirit. Like, as Peter was thinking, Lord, what does this mean? Ding dong! Is there a guy called Simon, otherwise known as Peter there? Yes, yes, there is. Um, While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I've sent them. Now, anyone who has their own Bible, not one of the few Bibles, I want you to underline the phrase, do not hesitate. It is critical to understanding this story. 
Um, in fact, this phrase, do not hesitate, is repeated three times in these sections about Peter encountering Cornelius. Three times, making a serious point, which we'll come back to. Do not hesitate, go with them, for I've sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men to his house to be his guest. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. In other words, a whole household gather together. As Peter entered the house, and just stop there, like for all of Peter's life, he lived by this kind of Jewish teaching, the instruction of the Torah, that, that Jews are to live separately from the Gentiles. Like, you Basically, the, the Jewish community believed that to be fully human, you had to be in relationship with Yahweh, God, the source of life. The Gentiles weren't in relationship with God, um, and therefore they could not be fully, fully human, according to their, their worldview. In fact, the nickname they had for the Gentiles, which are basically the non-Jews, was Gentile dogs, less than fully human. So all his life, he'd never had table fellowship with a non-Jew, a Gentile, because it would make him ceremonially unclean. And here, because of the prompting of the Spirit, he's suddenly in the house of Cornelius. Like, this is a massive, massive paradigm shift. All his life, uh-uh, 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 the Spirit speaks, and now he's in the house of Cornelius, probably freaking out, like, Lord, you better be in this, because, like, I, sh- I shouldn't be here. This is incredible. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came, and the Greek basically says, without any hesitation. That's the second use of the phrase. In this translation, without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And as the story continues, basically Cornelius tells him about the dream that happened at three o'clock when these guys were praying. And Peter's like, that's amazing because when I was praying, I had a dream and they compare dreams. And, and then basically Peter begins to preach the gospel, tell them about the life, death and, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God breaking in, the new age dawning. Um, and as he's preaching, the spirit of God fills this Gentile house. Now, for, for Peter and his buddies, it's like, what? The Spirit of God is, is falling upon the Gentile community. What? We don't know how to understand this. We don't have a paradigm for this, but the Spirit's at work. So Peter says, well, I think we just need to baptize you. So they baptize non-Jews into the family of God. Like, this is utterly, utterly remarkable. I mentioned this phrase without hesitation. Here's how I think we can define faith based on this story. It's the length of time between God speaking and our obedience. It's the length of time between God speaking and our obedience. When God speaks, Peter acts. When God speaks, Cornelius acts. These are moments of raw obedience. Now, what I want to highlight to you is the charismatic spirituality of the early church. Like, 
a number of us have probably grown up in church environments that have become suspicious of the prophetic, of the gift of tongues, of signs and wonders. Some of us have grown up in churches that have have taught a theology known as cessationism, that basically the Spirit of God kick-started the early church with signs and wonders, but at at the end of that kind of first generation of the followers of Jesus, um, the signs and wonders were kind of pulled back because the church had the scriptures and that's all they needed, so the signs and wonders aren't for today. Now, A lot of us, maybe in addition to that teaching, have basically built a theology on our experience or lack of experience of signs and wonders, of physical healings and the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm inviting us to become more biblical in our understanding of what it means to be church. And as you read through the text of Scripture, you'd have to conclude conclude it was a radically charismatic spirituality. Like, People were speaking in tongues left, right and centre in the book of Acts. In fact, whenever the Spirit comes, people begin to speak in tongues. That's amazing. It's happening in the the story. Like signs and wonders, physical healing. Some of us have seen other people manifest in the presence of God, maybe even shake. And And we're worried about that. If you've got questions, come and ask me. I'd love to answer any questions. Don't turn those questions off. Ask them. They will ask them. They will be your journey towards faith. But some of us have seen it and we, we, we're nervous about it. And I want to say like in the book of Acts, it wasn't just people that were shaking. Like buildings were shaking. If people shaking is terrifying, imagine your building shaking under the power of God. It's happening all over the place. More than that, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say that the Western church, in fact, the worldwide church as we know it, wouldn't exist unless people had responded to the prophetic that was amongst them. Right? Like, let me just give you two stories. Like without people operating in faith, responding to the prophetic, Christianity wouldn't have broken out of Judaism. It would have remained a small sect within Judaism. But because people heard the voice of God, they had the scriptures and they were living obedient to the scriptures, but they heard the voice of God in the prophetic and they responded and suddenly the church began to expand into the non-Jewish world. Two very quick stories. In fact, we've read one of them. Um, Paul, his conversion, who, who became the main preacher to the Gentile world. Um, he had this encounter with Jesus, he was blinded, um, and God tells him to go to Damascus. And and basically, um, a separate vision, a guy called Ananias, God speaks to Ananias and says, look, I want you to go to a very specific street in Damascus, it's called Straight Street. Now on Straight Street, there's a man called Judas. I want you to find his house, and when you get to his house, I want you to ask for a guy called Saul, who's from Tarsus. Um, He's been blinded, I want you to pray that he receives his sight. Okay? Now, Ananias knows of Saul. He knows that he basically murders Christians. He was a Pharisee, kind of a passionate Pharisee, and he wanted to kill, out the, kill off the church. So basically, Ananias has a vision, and God says, I want you to go to someone who wants to murder you and to pray that, that he receives his sight. Just imagine you're, if you're Ananias. If, if Ananias went to most pastors these days, I think they say, that, that, can't be of the, that can't be of the Lord. Let me give you a theological reason why God doesn't speak through the prophetic anymore. And then let me just, you know, that's not wise to do. Um, but what does Ananias do? He goes to Straight Street. He finds the house of Judas. He finds Paul, Saul. He prays for healing. The eyes of Paul, Saul, open up. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ and spends the rest of his life proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Like, and, and shakes the Greco-Roman world upside down as the kingdom of God expands. That's unbelievable. What if Ananias thought? That's a little bit nerve-wracking. No, I, th- I think I'm going to leave that one. Thank you, Lord. 
I'd love another vision about me becoming wealthy and, and living a comfortable life. You know, he basically gets the vision and he responds in faith. Unbelievable. Look, look at this story of, of, of Peter. He gets a vision he doesn't understand. And, and he responds and it says without hesitation. And he goes to Cornelius and he steps into a Gentile's house and all these paradigm shifts are happening. He doesn't understand it, but he's being obedient. And suddenly in this story, we see the, the church break out of Judaism and expand from Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth through Peter's obedience. Isn't that unbelievable? This is what faith is. It's the length of time between God speaking and, and God acting. Let me close with a couple of stories. Um, Tommy Ellis came to our staff meeting on Tuesday. He works for us. That's why he came to the staff meeting. Um, and he basically, we do some encouraging stories, feedback of, of God at work in and through the church, just to sort of build faith within our staff family. And he said, oh, this week I, I went to the, the gym. Um, I'm, I'm trying to sort of buff up, get a bit more stacked. I want to be a bit more like my pastor. That's what he said. I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. That's, that's, that. I'm quoting him at that point. I was like, that's a bit embarrassing, but yeah, I get it. Um, he says, I went to the gym, and then he didn't say that at all. Um, he w- went to the gym, and as he finished at the gym, he felt God say to him, I want you to go to this very specific pub across town, because there's someone I want you to meet there. Like, totally nuts and very specific. So he thought, well, I'm going to give it a go, nothing to lose. So he travels across town, finds this pub. Um, the pub is basically empty. He orders himself a beer, undoing his great work in the gym. Um, and he sits down and just begins to enjoy, enjoy the beer. Anyway, five minutes later, another guy walks into the pub, um, goes to order a beer, um, turns around. The, the place is pretty much empty, but walks straight over to Tom, sits right next to him and says, can I sit next to you? And Tom was like, oh, maybe this is the guy. And the guy basically, they get talking, and, and the guy essentially said that he was new to London, not from the UK, new to London, moved into southeast London, I think around Lewisham. Um, and he'd been feeling incredibly isolated and lonely, so much so that he thought, I'm just going to get on a train and go to a different part of town and see if I can find community there. And he walks into a pub, orders a beer, and goes to sit down next to Tommy, and they begin to talk for 45 minutes about life and about God. Like, I don't know about you, but that builds faith in me. I am grateful for Tommy's obedience. Like, the other thing that blows me away about that story is the kindness of God. He basically said to Tommy, this guy's lonely, and he's searching for community. He's one of the one. Like, I, I always leave the 99. I go for what, the one. He, he's one of them. I want you to go to this pub and talk to him because he needs community. Isn't that the kindness of God? How many people in this city are unbelievably lonely and feel isolated, longing for community? Don't you love it that God speaks and sends us to find those that are lonely? We just need to get better at listening, right? And when we hear it, we act in obedience. Here's the final story then. Some of you will have read this book, God Smuggler, um, the story of Brother Andrew's life. Brother Andrew basically smuggled Bibles um, behind the Iron Curtain into communist countries during the height of the Cold War, um, risking his life, leading hundreds of thousands of people to faith as he did so. Um, this book, God Smuggler, just put your hand in the air if you read it. Okay, a number of you have. It has sold over 10 million copies worldwide like one of the heroes of the, of the 20th century church. But let me tell you a story that many people won't know about Brother Andrew. And I, and I love this story. It's actually about another guy called Karl de Graaf. 
um, Carl de Graaf um, was in a kind of a prayer gathering. They gather with a few friends and they would sit in silence often and just listen to God. And when God spoke, they'd suddenly act in obedience because that's what faith is, right? Immediately acting without hesitation. Um, and God spoke to this gathering and said to Carl de Graaf, um, there's a guy across town called Brother Andrew. You were to go to him and tell him he needs to learn how to drive. That was it. No rationale for it. You need to tell him he needs to learn how to drive. So he goes across town. This is how Brother Andrew recounts the story. Um, I went out to the front stoop and there was Carl de Graaf. Hello, I said, surprised. Um, Hello, Andy. Do you know how to drive? Straight to it. Doesn't even introduce himself. Hey, mate, my name's Carl de Graaf. He's like, do you know how to drive? Drive an automobile? No, I said, bewildered. No, I don't. Because last night in our prayers, we had a word from the Lord about you. It's important for you to be able to drive. Man, a few words. I love... Love it. Whatever on earth for, I said. I'll never own a car, that's for sure. Andrew, Mr. DeGrasse spoke patiently, as to a slow-witted student. (laughs) Obviously patronising. I'm not arguing for the logic of the case. I'm just passing on the message. And with that, he was striding across the bridge. (laughs) You know, you love that. He walks across down. You, Andrew? Yeah, great. Um, We were in a prayer meeting. God said, you need to learn how to drive. You know how to drive? No, you need to learn how to drive. Cheers, mate. Essentially, something like that. A few days later, um, Carl de Graaf walks across town, finds Brother Andrew. He said, have you done anything with that word yet? Brother Andrew's like, no. He's like, fine, I'm going to teach you how to drive. I'm going to teach you how to drive. Neither of them knew why this would be important. This is the car that was used to smuggle hundreds of thousands of Bibles into communist countries. Like... Hundreds of thousands of people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because one guy, Carl de Graaf, got up off his backside, walked across town and said to Brother Andrew, I don't know why, but you need to learn how to drive. And for the best part of Brother Andrew's ministry, he drove that car into communist countries, giving people Bibles, introducing them to the person of Jesus and introducing them to life in the kingdom of God. Is that not mind-blowing? Is that not mind-blowing? It's mind-blowing, by the way. <laughs> like, some of us, we long to be a Brother Andrew type. We long to be like an Apostle Paul type, changing the world. Like, can I just say, let's start really small. What's God spoken to you? What was his last command? Have you done it? Like, ha- have you done it? Honestly, my desire right now, I, I want to be like Carl de Graaf. I want to be like Ananas. I'm happy for someone else to be Brother Andrew, the Apostle Paul. Like, I want to be obedient with the one or two things God has spoken to me and allow a tidal wave of kingdom activity to follow, right? This is what faith is. Closing passage, I've gone on, sorry. Um, Here it is. Then they gathered around him. This is the very beginning of the book of Acts and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends, right? This is what's happening. They'd seen Jesus die, rise again, the kingdom break out, but still they were concerned about the nation of Israel. They were panicked. They were like, is this the time when you're going like, to overthrow Rome and, and restore Israel? And Jesus says, don't worry about the when. Worry about the how. Here's the how. You're going to be filled 
with power from on high. And then you'll be my witnesses. You'll be the church spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. We live at a time where people in this country are panicking about the state of this nation. Like we gather, we worship and we pray on Sundays and Monday to Saturday, we are panicking about Brexit. Is it going to be a no deal Brexit? What's that going to do to society? Like, is there going to be a second referendum? Will will there be like an election that's drawn? Like what's going to happen? People are panicking about the state of this nation. Lord, is Britain going to be great again? Like what's happening? I believe Jesus would say to us at this time, don't worry yourself about the when. Your concern is the how and here's how it's going to happen. You will be filled with power when the Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. You will be the local church in central London, living for the kingdom of God. If ever there was a time to back the local church, it's right now, in a moment of cultural, financial, political turbulence and uncertainty, to say, Lord, the one thing we do know is that you want to extend your purposes through the local church, so do it through us. Why don't we stand?